Hey guys, welcome to the first episode of the False Motivation Podcast. Today we're talking about crime films and we've got a great guest, C. Andrew Dixon. He's a magician, comedian, and U.S. Army warrant officer. Let's do it! Welcome to the False Motivation Podcast. Follow us on Facebook at False Motivation Pod. motivation podcast hey everyone welcome to the false motivation podcast i am josh green i'm joined by my buddy bernie bernie what's going on this week bernie nothing storms 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 brewing and no more work we're up here in the pacific northwest in the puget sound area and they're up in arms up in arms over the storm right now which it does not seem that serious to me. Weak sauce. Weak. It's a weak. We're we're from the south, and this storm just does not seem like it has the urgency of a like a like a Gulf hurricane or a or a. I'm from Texas, so we have like tornadoes. Yeah. Sometimes we have a blizzard. East Coast hurricanes. Yeah, it's nothing like that. But people are Speaking still. Of hurricanes, so we went to Matthew did destroy the east coast yeah yeah that did happen and 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 hometown i think maybe maybe pacific northwest just wanted a piece of that but people we went to costco and people literally bought there were no flashlights my wife wanted a flashlight and there were no phones have flashlights now uh well see if you have a phone and the power goes out just go to your car and charge it come on people think (sighs) yeah that's true what if the storm blows your car away got bigger problems than a flashlight (laughs) (laughs) fact true fact so how's your week been man uh it's been a pretty good week actually pretty relaxing i did minimal work this week nice it's uh, very like you yeah i try you know (laughs) it's an art it's an art you've mastered it yeah clearly what about you uh well i had a baby this week that's a pretty big. <laughs> I like the dramatic pause after that. that well, was, uh, I didn't actually have it. My wife had it, but I was there. That's exciting. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was kind of so. It's my third, but it's it's not a big deal anymore. I guess it's just normal now. Yeah, you know, it's a routine. Not another kid. Yeah. No big deal. You can have that life right now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm pretty excited about today's episode. Uh, we're talking about our favorite crime slash gangsta slash I said gangsta I mean gangster <laughs> gangsta movie uh, we're talking about our favorite I guess crime oriented movies yeah so uh, I'm pretty excited because these are some of my favorite movies I think when I was in high school I was I went through a big like mafia and hitman phase and yeah so I think I think these movies have kind of gone away. There are not a lot of them around anymore that are coming out still. Not not to the caliber that these are. No, man. The ones I think that we're I think that we're going to talk about and that our guest is going to talk about are are nothing's quite touched them since since really I think the heyday was like the 90s and maybe some of the 2000s. Yeah. But I think I think the time maybe has gone. For, for for this type of movie, but which is okay because 
Yeah, you gotta have classics. Yeah, good things end, and I think the good mafia movie, at least that's which is part of what we're talking about, is that era has kind of ended. There are still some that are okay, which we'll talk about. But anyway, I'm pretty excited, so uh, we'll take a short break and we'll get our guest on here, who I'm very excited about, and we will be back in a sec. Featured on the False Motivation Podcast? Post a link to your creative work on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and hashtag it False Motivation Pod. Or you can send an email to False Motivation Pod at gmail.com. We'll be right back after the break. everyone um we're joined right now by a really good friend of mine uh, we attended warrant officer candidate school together and warrant officer basic course together and getting to know this guy was really crazy because he is just not does not have the typical uh background of someone who would be in the military but he is a magician still a practicing magician magician he's done stand-up comedy He's done musical theater. Um, he's currently a forger, which I'm going to ask him about also. What is a forger? Uh, I think he's gonna he's gonna have to break that down for us. Um, and then he's also a U.S. Army warrant officer, which is also really cool. Uh, Chris Dixon, or C. Andrew Dixon, as he's known professionally. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing great, guys. How are you guys doing tonight? Wonderful. We're doing good. We're just kind of waiting out the storm and and uh, thinning our blood with alcohol. Um, thanks for coming on, man. Um, I guess we'll start with um, a little bit of just kind of your testimony, I guess. Um, how, uh, talk about, uh, I guess, a little bit about your time, you, you've talked to me, you, your time in New York, your time as a performer, as a comedian, a magician, um, traveling, uh, doing theater, and maybe how you ended up in uh, the Army and eventually as a warrant officer. If you could, I, I, that's kind of a broad uh, line to, yeah, to walk, so but... First 27 years of my life, life where, story. you know... <laughs> you know, full life story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you could just give us the whole, you know, the whole 30 whatever years. Uh, usually the interviewers Wikipedia this stuff before we get on. No, <laughs> We're trying to cut out the middleman here. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, like, when I was little, my dad uh, took me to a magic shop. I don't know why exactly. Um, but he was buying something. He was kind of the jokester where he worked. And he took me into a magic shop, and he was purchasing something, and I just fell in love with looking around this place. I might have been maybe six or seven. Uh, and then I hadn't gone back there until maybe I was about 12 or 13. Um, and I would just hang around. I didn't really have money to buy anything. But the gentleman that worked behind the counter, his name was Joe, he uh, sent me home with something. He said, here, if you can practice this and come back and show it to me, uh, you can keep a copy yourself. So he gave me the cups and balls, which is a typical magic routine, you know, just three cups, three balls, and they magically, you know, trade places and disappear and reappear and things like that. So I went home and I practiced and I came back and I showed it to him. He goes, no, no, it's not good enough yet. You know, go back and practice it again and then you can keep it. Um, so I 
he taught me how to practice, which was really awesome. That, that's a key that anybody can learn, whether learning an instrument or um, uh, another skill like magic or acting or anything at all. Practice is really key. Um, so I, I went back and finally showed it to him. He goes, that's perfect. Now stand behind the counter and try to sell it to the next couple people that come through. So I did, you know, and finally after maybe four or five people, you know, somebody that happened to be looking for something, um, they picked it up. He gave me a copy, and then he sent me home with another trick. And he said, hey, learn this uh, and come back and do the same thing. So not only was I learning how to practice, I was learning how to perform the trick. I was learning how to practice um, selling it to an audience because doing it in front of a mirror is completely doing it, uh, completely different than doing it in front of a live audience or, or a little gathering. Um, and I was building up a whole catalog of magic of my own. Um, so then with that, you know, I started learning about acting and, you know, did some school plays and, you know, what have you with that. After uh, I graduated school, I immediately moved to New York and I would do magic during the day, stand-up comedy at night. And magic, you know, you work for tips, basically busking is what they call it out in Washington Square Park or Union Square Park. Um, and you'd get the money, then I would get that money and go do comedy at night. Um, and that's how I didn't make my living for about eight years. Um, and then, yeah, so I met a, I went back home, met a girl, um, ended up starting a relationship with her and she wanted to move to Los Angeles to become an actress. So we moved out that way. Um, and then, you know, we tried it out there for a little bit. It was a little difficult to kind of get grounded because I think it's something like 87% of Los Angeles are, is aspiring actors. So you know, are you serious? Yeah, it's, it's a crazy number like that. I mean, it's either people that work behind the scenes doing producer gigs or Foley artists or, you know, best boy. I'm just, I, I've never heard that statistic before, and that blows me away. That's that's staggering. Dude, you walk into a restaurant, and the wait staff is 20 people that night, and that's just the dinner shift. So then there's 20 other people that work the day shift, and then there, those are the shifts that are working that day. There's other shifts that are working or that are off that week. They're all actors. Every single one of them look gorgeous, male and female. I mean, just cut, chiseled bodies, um, bright white teeth, you know, beautiful curly locks of hair, and they're all trying. I mean, that's just one cheesecake factory <laughs> on one corner. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I mean, it's obvious that, you know, it, it's a super saturated industry out there. So we drove back home to Pennsylvania. I'm from Pennsylvania. We drove from L.A. back to PA. Uh, and while we were visiting, I was like, you know, I kind of need a job, like a real job. So I actually uh, walked into MEPS, and the Army was the first door on the left. So that's pretty much the one that I went with. If I would have walked two doors down, I'd probably be in the Air Force right now. But um, So, yeah, I joined the Army. But before that, um, I was on a national tour of Beauty and the Beast where we hit 247 cities in nine months. Um, like, yeah, 47 states. Um had to get the you know the union cards and all that stuff and i thought that was going to be my life you know but uh then joining the army i thought it was going to be like full metal jacket where they they beat that <laughs> mentality out of you but really man i found no more appreciating audience than i have in the united states army I mean, these guys they they eat it up they love it they you know like they need that break they need that relief but and do, it's completely fitting but do you and and you and i've kind of talked about this a little bit because we kind of come from similar I mean, I wasn't on a national tour of Beauty and the Beast or anything, but we come from performance backgrounds. Do you ever, like, find it kind of jading or lonely, like, being, I mean, out of every 50 people you meet in the military, 
maybe one will be uh, uh, someone who used to perform or sing or dance or something. Do you, I mean, is that is that awesome to you because you're the diamond in the rough, or is it kind of like man? Because I I remember meeting you and thinking and, and really clinging to you because it's like this guy, you know, uh, he he does this stuff and that's cool and and I you know I'm not gonna meet another guy like him in a long time. So is that depressing for you or is it encouraging for you? Fear in life used to be being the funniest guy in the office. That would have been the worst for me, like because it just shows like oh man like yeah you know there's something there's something there that's different. It stands out that it, you know these people appreciate or they enjoy or it entertains them. And what are you doing? You're in an office. You're making them laugh at the copy machine. Um, but after a while, you know, like life is what happens when you're busy making plans. So you have a wife, you have some kids, you have a dental plan. You know, you have things that are you're responsible for. And to to throw that away or make them uh, struggle because I want to chase a dream of oh I want to go out to L.A. again and I want to try to make it. It's just foolish. So it's like, no, you know what? I'm going to be the funniest guy in the office. Like, you know, I might as well do it. It's, if it's natural to you, it's natural to me, or if it's natural to anybody else that's not actually pursuing it full-time uh, uh, professionally, it's it's going to be a part of your day. It's going to be a part of your life. So, you know, you can't shy away from it. But, yeah, you know, of course there's depressing times where you're like, oh, man. You know, a, a friend of mine uh, that I went to governor school with, which was a, a acting – and writing seminar program in Pennsylvania. They, they could not. Have, they could not have picked a more pretentious title for that. <laughs> well, it was it was it was, uh, it was like sponsored by the governor. Oh. You know, would, uh, yeah, they would audition like three thousand kids, and out of that, they'd pick sixty, send them up to a college in Erie, Pennsylvania, for the summer, and you get taught by like people from Northwestern and oh, and Juilliard, man. and all kinds of crazy schools would come in and teach you for free. Uh, you know, acting or music or drama, um, you know, whatever whatever you applied for. Um, well, yeah, so one of the buddies that I was with, he just won a Tony this past season uh, for wow. a Broadway play that he wrote. And I'm like, oh, there's a guy. There's a guy that's doing it, you know? But the struggles and sacrifices he had to make for that one-in-a-lifetime shot, I prefer having, you know, a little bit of money in the bank and having a secure job. So it's not depressing at all. And plus, like, like you said, there's lots of people – out there we just need to connect with them um and i mean because you've met musicians you've met other actors and things like that in the army and it's just uh, in the army as you know it's very rarely do you find friends you find people that you happen to work with that you get along with because you're there for a year you're there for three years or whatever but if you're in school together you might never have talked but then every once in a while you find people like we have where it's like oh no that guy and i we really click you know yeah, totally. And you're definitely one of those kind of unique, unique people. Um, I guess before we get into the topic today, um, uh, I had a question I was going to ask you. Um, it totally slipped my mind. Uh, <laughs> kind of a question. Oh, what's your question, Bernie? All right. So <clears throat> I am pretty into uh, stand-up comedy. Watching oh, it. Right on, uh, I, I, I watched quite a bit of it. But... Uh, what is it that you find the, the I guess you could say the scariest thing about doing stand-up comedy? Actually getting up there and, and in front of a room full of strangers and just talking. What is, what is the hardest thing about stand-up comedy or the scariest thing about stand-up comedy? Well, because I, because I tried acting first. Uh, um, acting, you're reliant on the script, the director, the lighting, 
the audience, uh, the costumes, the time of day, whether you're doing a, a show at noon for a matinee or at night at 8 o'clock, whether it's Sunday or Friday. There's so many reasons why a show could go good or fail that have nothing to do with you. Uh, so it makes you kind of comfortable because all you got to do is get up, say your lines, the way you rehearse, and you rehearse forever, and you have to say these specific things, and you have a director telling you, you did it right, you did it wrong. When you get up and do stand-up comedy, if they don't laugh, it's because you weren't funny. And it's a hard blow. Like, it's really tough. You're, you know, you step off stage, especially being in a comedy club where you're seeing other guys just kill it. And the hardest thing isn't failing. It's not compromising and becoming something that you're not. Because you see other people that are succeeding. You're like, oh, man, this guy, he's just he's doing these kind of jokes. He uses the F word like a comma. He just uses it everywhere. Like, and maybe if I did that, they would like me. The hard part is saying, no, no, no. Like, I have something unique to say. I have a unique point of view. I just need to overcome it's, you know, it's a learning process to overcome those little growing pains and find out where it's funny or what's not funny. After that, then it's just a learning experience. You just get up and it's, all right, I'm going to get up and I'm going to fail, but I'm going to learn from it. So it's not going to be as scary. But those first couple times, man, like when they're not laughing and your whole job, the only reason you're there is to make them laugh. And the only reason they're there is to laugh. You're like, man, we're re- what are we doing? Who I, are we? I have what to, are these people? I have to imagine, though, doing it in New York, which is the proverbial belly of the beast, there has to be a degree of, like, I'm in the meat grinder right now, and if I if these people don't laugh, I may not be funny. Sure. And, and there's, there's the old stories that they used to say about the people that would audition for SNL, Saturday Night Live, and how Lauren and Tina Fey, they would all sit there and watch the auditioning, but they wouldn't laugh. They would just give you nothing uh, because they want you to just do what you do and not be reliant on the reactions that you're getting. Whereas the mentality on stage as just a stand-up comedian is, oh, they're laughing at that? Okay, I should go do more of what that is instead of staying true to what you're at. So that said, you're learning more about yourself than you are about the audience because I could go up and tell the joke one way and it gets nothing. Somebody throws a chicken wing at your head. Or I could get up and say the exact same joke, just saying it slower or pausing at the right time or changing one word. Delivery. And it just brings the house down. So that has nothing to do with the audience. That has to do with me. Um, so my biggest thing is this was before cell phones, you know, big cell phones like ours now. Um, <laughs> but I would take like an actual tape recorder and I would just sit it there on the stool and I would record everything that I said. And I'd go back and listen to it because, you know, our memories are so fallible. I'd be like, oh, that killed. And then I'd listen. I'd be like, oh, they didn't really laugh at all at that, but I thought they did. Or they laughed at this, and it was really just a pause. And then I would kind of formulate, you know, whatever the recipe was around what I heard and keep changing it. So, yeah. That's crazy, man. So, I guess I've remembered what I was going to ask you, and it was actually pretty critical because we glazed over it when we introduced you. Tell us about, um, you talked a little bit about magic. You uh, talk about being a forger. I, I kind of know what that is just by kind of knowing you, but I have no idea give us the definition from someone who knows what the hell it actually is and, and what you do. Um, bec- it, it, when you find out what it is, it really, it's, it's something that 
it, it, I don't. You just need to tell us what it is. <laughs> so, so there's a, there's a bad stigma with the word forger, as there should be, because it means deception. It means that you're deceiving somebody, usually for financial gain, um, and without any kind of, um, without any kind of prestige. You're not telling them at the end, like, oh, this was a trick. Um, usually forgers, you know, like, catch me if you can. They would forward checks or documents or IDs or something like that because they wanted to do something and pull one over on somebody, a con almost, which is kind of fitting that, you know, our whole theme of this is um, crime movies because a lot of them have to do with cons, swindles, hustles, heists, things like that. But for me, um, so I used to do this one trick where I would have somebody sign a playing card and then secretly, right in front of them, I would duplicate their signature on another playing card. Um, so I learned from that, there's, there's an artist technique that you can learn um, where you can replicate anything you see just by looking at it and doing it a certain way. With your, there, There's a formula with your eyes and the way your hand moves where you can basically do a mirror writing and replicate any kind of handwriting that you see. So I would fake their signature right in front of them. They would never see me doing it. And then, you know, that card would magically appear, you know, anywhere. And it has their, I mean, they would swear to God that it was their signature. So uh, after a while, I started just practicing this with uh, my wife and with different famous signatures I would see online, different people that I always wanted to collect, Mickey Mantle or Michael Jordan or anybody. Um, so I learned, like, oh, I kind of got a knack for this. I can replicate people's handwriting. But what it does come down to is, uh, um, in Magic, there's this book, and it's called The Expert at the Card Table. It's uh, from 1902. It was written by a guy or guys named S.W. Erdenes. Nobody knows who actually wrote it. It's a pseudonym. Some people think that it was, you know, the real name of the guy, E.S. Andrews, just spelled backwards. Some people think it was uh, a group of guys, some in Britain and some in uh, Boston, all writing together. But nobody really knows exactly who this guy was. All we have is this, this book. And in the book, he describes how to use these different gambling techniques. Uh, dealing cards from the bottom, dealing cards from the second, dealing cards from the middle, uh, shuffling a deck so that all the aces arrive at the top, things like that. And these were true gambling techniques, because back then, parlor gambling was huge. Um, well, a magician named Di Vernon picked up that book and started reading it as a child became one of the best magicians in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. I mean, he was huge. Um, but he was the one that brought that that knowledge into the magic world. Nobody had ever thought about using gambling techniques to stack a deck for magic purposes or to deal from the bottom for magic purposes. Well, that book is very, very rare, and there's, there's only a few out there in existence still, first edition-wise. Um, and if you find one, they're about $10,000. But there was a really nice replica that was made in 2002, which was the centennial version, 100 years from 1902. And it looks almost exactly like the very first edition that it was ever made. Same cover, same typeset inside, same cloth binding, beautiful. Um, and just for fun, the guys that made that decided to keep their name out of it, so they were as anonymous as the one that wrote the original. Well, I owned a few of these, and I wanted an original so bad because I love the knowledge, and I love the writing that's inside of it, and I've built my life around it, but I couldn't afford a $10,000 copy. So I started, started studying different art forging techniques, um, aging paper, um, a, uh, doing handwriting analysis to, to replicate different people's writing, and I started creating copies using the new copy to look exactly like 
its 114-year-old brother. Um, so now, I mean, I, I go so far as taking 100-year-old pages from old library books, burning them, mixing it with ink, and then using that to write on the inside so that if anybody carbon dated the actual copy that I have, it would still pass and say, oh, this thing's 114 years old. This is legitimate. Um, those are the kind of like forging techniques. But, and then I would sell those or give them away as gifts to prominent magicians that also followed that study. So um, the guys that write uh, David Copperfield's show, Chris Kenner and Homer Leewag, uh, Ricky Jay, David Blaine, all these guys, I would send them copies um, because they're passionate about it as well. And now they own an exact replica that can be tested carbon-wise that looks exactly like a 114-year-old edition, but it's basically a forgery, you know? Which is cool because it's also a deception wrapped in a deception. It's magic wrapped around magic, you know? Talk about just for, uh, and I don't want you to give away any kind of trade secrets or anything, but just what are some things you would do to a typical a, a piece uh, just some methods that you would use to just like age a page or or the the binding of a of a book or whatever. What what, what kind of things would you do? So all age is all time is is pressure, friction, and element. That's it. I mean that's the only difference from going to a library and pulling out a library book or an old car. You see an old rusty car. What well, it's the elements, right? It's pressure. It's uh, the climate. It's friction. It's dust hitting it and pebbles hitting it. And that's the only difference between a new car, a 2017 car, and a 2005 car is it's experienced pressure, friction, and element. So that's all I do is I replicate it like in a very speedy way the exact same catalysts that it would go through over its 114-year-old journey from hand to hand. So... I would the first thing that happens is when you read a book and I'm speaking mostly of documents is there's going to be oils on your hand so I use a little bit of castor oil stick it on my hand and I go through the pages that's going to leave oil prints on it uh, and then I take a certain powder which is basically a, a woman's makeup face based powder uh, that turns pages kind of yellowish and brittle so I'd rub that on every page and then heat I'd add a heat gun to it to dry it in so that it sinks in and then on the cover, it's basically sandpaper, dirt, clay, um, pieces of uh, uh, grass clippings. Just rub them in. I mean, it's just anything, you know, paying attention to the spine or the bottom where, you know, they're pulling it in and out of a bookshelf for 100 years. Just replicating that motion. Now, I'm not going to put it on my bookshelf and take it on and off, you know, 900 times to replicate 100 years of use. So I'll just use a sanding block. And just doctor it that way. I'll throw some ink on it, or some coffee stains, uh, some tea. Um, I'll blow uh, one of them. Uh, I stuck in a bag, and I smoked a cigar, and then held the cigar inside the bag with the book for about five, ten minutes, and then let it air out in the garage, so it has that musky smell. And that's all it is: replicating that pressure, friction, and elements. So once I figured out that formula of time, I could just you know inject it into anything I'm making. And I if I were you. I, if I had your skill, rather, I would uh, I would try I would try to pull one over on the Pawn Stars guys. I think that would be my goal because for one thing, they are the biggest tools on that show, in my opinion. If I could get that old bearded guy with the hat, the Civil War, you know, <laughs> if 
I could get him to just shake my hand and say something is worth five grand that I made in my garage, you know, <laughs> out of scraps, you know, I'll make a, a civil war. Like, oh yeah, this is this is the wooden teeth of George Washington. <laughs> that, that would be awesome. Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> oh, oh, I love it. Well, that's awesome, man, and and I really appreciate you uh, just telling your story and talking about what you do. Uh, aside from just being a soldier, which is also totally commendable, but um, it's totally cool that uh, this is what you're doing, and and uh, we'll get into some of the the stuff you've got upcoming uh, after our conversation here. Um, let's roll into uh, today's topic, which is basically crime movies. We we started with gangster movies, but I wanted to kind of keep it broad because. If we spend too much time on a really low-level subject, we're going to end up having to do uh, just a lot of hair-splitting. So I wanted to keep it kind of loosey-goosey with crime movies, um, which includes anything from, I guess, your classic gangster movies to uh, maybe a heist movie or... Uh, I don't know. Anyway. So I guess we'll kind of go around Robin here. Um, Bernie, I asked you last week, or well, I guess just a couple of days ago, what... What were your favorite gangster movies? And it, it, it I, I wanted to broaden it because it, it seems like there were a few that maybe you had missed. Yeah. Probably <laughs> movies I haven't seen. There's, there's quite a few of those. There are. And there are some I haven't seen. And, and I won't even mention them because it's kind of shameful that I've missed them. But uh, we, I wanted to broaden it up because it seems like within even even a good like cop drama or heist movie the the character development seems to be really key in those movies especially when you get into the just the the i mean the the, the criminal psyche i guess just kind of it's it's hard to it's hard to define what what makes it transfer to film so easily but when you look at american cinema the overwhelming percentage of what we enjoy is crime. It's people doing bad stuff. Yeah, like I mean, anything from robbing stuff that someone, everyone wishes they could do stuff that everyone wishes they could do. And I, I hypothesize that is part of why games like Grand Theft Auto are so popular because people, maybe in their mind, they want to go around and run punch, a hook, run a hooker over, punch a car <laughs> Um, but anyway, so we'll go around Robin and, and, uh, we'll talk about, uh, maybe in order of precedence. I, I went top three, I guess. Um, but if you have a top two or a top five, whatever, just talk about the ones that, uh, affect you or, or affected you the most, I guess. Uh, we'll start with our number threes though. Bernie, what do you got for your number three? Number three, um, when I told you these, I, I, they weren't in order, but number three would be, Training day. Training day. Awesome. Oh, great. Yeah, great choice. Uh, one of my one of my all time favorites actually. Talk training day, man. Uh it I I waited a long time to watch training day too. I watched it for the first time this year. Sometime this year, I don't remember when. But uh I was tired of people talking about it and I knew nothing what they were talking about. But it was I don't know, watching watching how the guy went from 
being terrified on his first day to just being a straight badass almost was <laughs> was amazing. And then, Jake, Jake, <laughs> it, it, uh, I, I, I'm with you, man. I, I saw a training day. I was kind of a late bloomer on training day, I guess, because it came out, man, like. 2001 I think or something like that 2001 2002 yeah yeah but I mean so and the contrast between Ethan Hawke who is kind of this meek you know just kind of the the total new guy green young guy against uh Denzel Washington's just I mean at first you think he's just a hard ass cop Mm -hmm. and by the by the end, you find out he's he doesn't care who he walks over. At the end of the day, um, but yeah, some some of the uh, man training day, good choice, man. Because it got a lot yeah, of good one liners. Denzel Washington in that reminds me of a zookeeper or a prison guard that kind of fell into the system instead of stayed outside of it. Like he became one of the gorillas <laughs> or he became one of the lions because it was easier to survive that way. You know, like conditionally. Yeah. It was either you're going to be this this virgin like Ethan Hawke who you know has the family takes his wedding ring off, or you're going to be you, you got you got to just dive into it, and that's the only way you can change things is to be a cog in the system instead of being the oil on the outside. That that is actually one of the most accurate because uh, uh, Alonzo is one of my favorite I guess movie villains. It's it's almost hard to say villain because at some points you almost want to be like. Yeah, man, I'll I'll smoke that shit. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. but yeah, uh, it reminds me a lot of Walter White, where it's like he just got in so deep that it's like this is how things kind of just go. Breaking Bad, <laughs> Breaking Bad, man. And you can and you can almost it's it's hard not to even visualize like a young Alonzo like standing in formation as a young like recruiter. Absolutely. You know he excelled in his class. He oh yeah. On the top of the class of the academy, but he you know he had that bright star. He came out of the projects stars you're gonna try to change everything yeah absolutely i man i i commend you on your your submission of training day man that one of my favorite movies so quote like Like cases on all you bitches oh man training day is one of the most quotable not comedies it is it is is the (laughs) it is is the anchorman of cop dramas (laughs) (laughs) it is so quotable and so many badass not just lines, but moments. Just shoe program. <laughs> oh man! Like, yes. All right, Chris. Uh, Chris, you're num- you're number three. You're you're top top three. A three out of three. Number three is Criminal uh, by with uh, John C. Riley. Um, John C. Riley. Every once you know you know him from you know Step Brothers and things like that. But every once in a while, he does some really kick-ass drama parts like Boogie Nights or uh, this one that I'm speaking of, you know, Boogie Nights, Perfect Storm, um, but Criminal, it was based on an Argentinian film called Nine Queens, and it's about this con artist that meets a young kid, he sees a young kid trying to pull a con, and he decides to try to mentor him, take him under his wing a little bit because two heads are always better than one and being a con team is always better than just being a single lone wolf so he tries to take him under his wing and uh mentor this kid long story short i mean the whole thing is a con this is one of those kind of uh christopher nolan style you know inception type movies where afterwards you're like i don't know what like usual 
usual suspects, and you're like, I don't know what I just saw. Uh, you got to go back and watch it again. Um, so, you know, without without blowing the lid off things, there's a lot of secrets and a lot of deception going on that takes a couple watches to see get set up. Um, but it's just brilliant seeing him, A, in a dramatic role, B, like this kind of creepy, seedy character, which you're not used to from seeing him in Talladega Nights and, and Step Brothers, but also just real scams. Like, they actually uh, uh, researched real cons. There's the long con, the short con, things like that. And they would, uh, you know, he would actually do real scams that people do out there on the streets now. So it kind of was also a, a lesson on what to look out for. If you see somebody at a bus station, you know, pretending like they, they're waiting on a Western Union, you know what I mean? You kind of perch your ears up a little bit because you now you know, like, oh, that's a scam that goes on. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, you know, try to help this guy or whatever. So it was a really good lesson, but also, man, just a, a great, great con film. I, man, I'm going to have to alibi that one because... I mean, me, me and Green gave each other a look. It's definitely going on our list, but I, I'm going to say I am 100% in agreement that John C. Riley is one of those actors that you don't, you, you all constantly forget how much you love to watch him. He and so talented. And so talented. I mean, anything like from. Comedy is easy if you're funny. You know what I mean? Like, it's just Will Ferrell is just a funny dude. So when he does comedy, it's real easy to laugh at him. John C. Riley is a funny dude, but also he can really, really act. He really can't. And one of my favorite examples of this is the fact that he is, uh, and I don't know if you guys watch a lot of Adult Swim, but Steve Brule. That, They're doing a Steve Brule movie. Oh my gosh. But he's that, and then he's the, the he's that, and then he's the Officer Mulraney on Gangs of New York, which he is despicable yeah. in. Absolutely. The Rabbits, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he did. He did True West with um, Philip Seymour Hoffman on stage, and and the cool thing about the True West play is uh, that it's only two characters, um, and every other night they would switch characters. So both of them had to learn the exact, like the full play, and switch performances every other night. And you know, going up against Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's just an acting beast, uh, just shows what kind of chops and what kind of level John C. Riley is at. I, I, I have to say that would be beast on beast for me because both of those guys to me like, and even Hoffman I've seen him do he did the one funny role in, Along Came Polly where he talks about the shark and that was that was truly the invention of the shark for me but, <laughs> my yeah my eyes were open to the shark in that moment but I mean John C Riley is all over the map in a good way and and I this movie is going on my list I haven't seen it but. I'm definitely, uh, I'm going to write it down and, and check it out. Uh, criminal, yes? Yep, Criminal. Awesome. Yeah, I'm definitely going to look into that. Um, so for my number three, I went with uh, Sin City. Um, which, so to a lot of people, I feel like this movie is kind of, it's it's too much of a good thing. It's kind of gaudy. But uh, have you seen Sin City, Bernie? No, I have not seen oh Sin City. Oh my gosh. Oh. Yeah. Dude. Your Netflix queue is gonna be huge after this conversation. Oh man, you <laughs> got some you got some watching to do. Man, yeah, I'm, gonna, Sin, I'm gonna type it right now. So Sin City came out when I was I was still in high school and um it's a Robert Rodriguez movie which he had done Desperado and, and Once Upon a Time in Mexico before, which were they were good enough movies and they were kinda they, you know, they had that kind of niche just like guns gun gun violence on a budget appeal. 
But Sin City, I guess, at the time, it wasn't that he did anything... I'm always a big fan of movies that just kind of break the ground. Kind of, The Matrix is one of my favorite movies, which is not the topic for tonight, but I like it because it's groundbreaking, and no one has ever been able to replicate that. I feel that way about Sin City when it comes to these kind of movies because of the. I love I love an exaggerated noir appeal so so even like dick tracy like the old dick tracy movie if you stand back and look at it it really it, it's really campy and it, it's not great but i think if you if you really soak it in the the noir yeah it's 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 hard to define the the the, the emotion i guess but sin city really was a, a big deal for me. I know for a lot of people it was probably just a good movie, but it was, you know, it's three stories and it's, it, to, to me, it's hard to talk about. Have, have, have you've seen it, yes, Chris? Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it. <laughs> I, man, I, I feel like, uh, I feel like I'm on an island on this one, but Sin City to me, uh, especially the character Marv. Marv, Mickey Rourke, who I had, had no clue who Mickey Rourke was before I saw this movie. I had never seen... Oh, you need to go back and, and watch some Mickey Rourke pre-face transplant. I... Yeah, I <laughs> know. <laughs> he is definitely... He is he is haggard looking, but... And I was surprised... Barfly, where he plays the writer Charles Bukowski. And uh, he's just an L.A. drunkard. And it, it was his star-shining performance of the late 80s. And that's what made Ricky Mickey Rourke who he is. Um, so definitely go back and check that out. I and I will. I was surprised to see though because my first visual of Mickey Rourke was Mickey Rourke as Marv from Sin City. So yeah. when I finally saw Mickey Rourke not as Marv from Sin City, I was like, he kind of just still looks like Marv, but with a ponytail. Like, yeah, he's just not in black and white. That's all. <laughs> yeah, but um, really great. Um, you know, like like I said, it's noir, so it's a little campy, but. Um, just the, the, the mood that it evokes is, is very, it's very romantic at times, I think, which is, which I like a lot, but also very disturbing. There's a lot of really disturbing stuff in Sin City that is just, uh, it's not typical to these, these kind of crime, noir, mafia, bad cop movies, um, that I think that I enjoyed. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't a level of like, that was cool, but I'll never watch it again. It was, it was that one I can watch over and over again. Now the sequel. Now, do, you, do you think uh, Sin City is trans is easily translated to people that aren't into comic books or might not know Frank Miller's kind of style? Um, because it seems like that's who it was geared towards. But how do you think it was received by just people that had nothing, to, you know, no no frame of reference? It's hard to say because that was kind of actually my introduction to Frank Miller, and I was surprised to learn that I had probably seen more Frank Miller than I knew because he had been so involved yeah. with. You know the the Dark Knight Returns and the old Wolverine and um, uh, I I think and I'm also biased because I like you know things that are based off comic books so um, it's hard to say um, I I found it easy but not because it was comic book movie I think and and it's it's well known that Robert Rodriguez he he basically used the graphic novels as his storyboard for that movie. And um, he, a lot of the shots are direct replications of, you know, the the the, the graphic novel itself. So um, it's it's hard to say. I've I've met a lot of people who aren't big comic book nuts 
who love that movie and think it's awesome and just some of the you know when they electrocute him and he he sits back up and he's like is that the best you can do pansies you know uh way to ruin it for me <laughs> well you you know what it's been out for a decade you know you, <laughs> you had your chance <laughs> Absolutely. You know what I mean? It really kind of uh, set the ground on translating. Because, I mean, Batman, Superman, they translate comic books into movies all the time. But to translate comic book scenery and direction and stylization uh, from a comic book into a movie is really rare. And Sin City, you know, gave birth to things like Watchmen. Yeah. And the parallel there, too, is it's, it's numerous stories being told. Uh, throughout it and then a movie which is compressed into two hours which is difficult to do but anyway I, I'm running long on a movie that not all three of us have seen uh, Sin City is definitely my number three it's just it's been with me through the years and I love it so let's talk our second picks Bernie back to you my second pick is No Country for Old Men terrific terrific again just watched it recently so it's uh, fresh that amazing great movie and I wish I would have watched it sooner I really do couldn't agree more <laughs> I I love uh, this to me and again Coen Brothers talking about being all over the map I guess but I mean this was not on their radar I mean they had done stuff that was a little dark or black comedy like Fargo and then they rolled back to something like uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou but this was just there's no soundtrack there's no there's no happiness or joy in no. this movie. It is straight up. This is a sh- shitty situation. Here it goes, and you're along for the ride, whether you want to be or not. Yeah, it's kind of jumps right in. And, and you're right about the Coen Brothers, man. I mean, the fact that they can start with Raising Arizona and go all the way up to Hudsucker Proxy. You know, like these kind of campy, uh, you know, real specific genre films, the adaptation. You know, and then do No Country for Old Men, which is almost Hitchcockian you know it's real just to the point and yeah I and and I'm from Texas and, and uh, it's you know it, people have done the math on it. it it takes place in 1980 which is long before I was born but <laughs> long before you were born <laughs> many many years ago but uh, it is frightening how well it, it's frightening to be, be because the the kind of the locals that Anton Chigurh and uh, Llewellyn Moss encounter throughout this movie. They are very like the woman in the hotel who's who's just Once giving him. Drink some, a beer? It, no, 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 no. Well, that woman, but the old woman who's when he's renting the hotel rooms. Oh. And okay. she's like, "Well, that one's got two beds." Yeah, like yeah. that's how old women talk in Texas. They are just very like, "Well, why do you want that?" Like Is that how they talk uh, like um, or the her mother. Yeah, or the mother, or the woman when Shigar goes to the tent, the landlord office at the, um, what is it called, the trailer park office, mm. and he's like, where does he work? And she's like, I, I'm not supposed to give you that information. <laughs> <laughs> and he, it, like, that's, I mean, that's it, man. Like, that, I mean, those people don't even die, or scary things don't even happen to them. Yeah. And their realness makes the actual violence in that movie more scary to me. Yeah. And uh, and not to mention that uh, Javier Bardem is absolutely frightening. It's terrifying. Oh my gosh. And the unique choice of the uh, the, the cowl. I don't even know what that's called. 
His hair. <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, 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 the, yeah it's yeah. like a silent shotgun or, oh yeah the yeah. the the air can thing. first off that is yeah. genius oh yeah no bullet pure genius there's no bullet yeah can't trace no, that absolutely yeah that and and i think his unassuming look is part of it too like a hitman before that movie was like a bald brooding which he's definitely brooding but like he has this shitty chili bowl <laughs> Filipino pop star yeah. haircut. He's like the Orkin man. He's like the Orkin <laughs> man. You know what I mean? Like he's in like all dickies. You know? He's yeah. Like, he's in like pants and dickies shirt. Like a janitor, you know? Yeah. He comes into the store, you know, and he's like, have you ever gambled for your life? And you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, mister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're closing now. Expect- yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Do you want to get featured on the False Motivation Podcast? Post a link to your creative work on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and hashtag it FalseMotivationPod. Or you can send an email to FalseMotivationPod at gmail.com. We'll be right back after the break. And we are back. And we're back. Uh... We have Chris Beck. He answered his commander's call and soothed soothed his worries and his 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 uh, anxieties. And he's back with us to talk to us about his uh, number two pick for crime films. Number two. All right. So I had a toss up uh, between a really good one and another really good one. Um, but I'm gonna say the Ocean's trilogy, and nice. I can't quantify into one movie because it's really a trilogy. You know, there are specific movies, specific plots. But just that gang alone. I mean, from I mean, it's star-studded. You got Damon, you got Clooney, Pitt, Cheadle, um, the I, little Chinese guy. I would watch those guys put a Lego set together, and it would probably still be good. <laughs> Absolutely, man. I, and I just watched the second one last night, so it was right on the tip of my tongue. But it was a remake of an old Frank Sinatra film called Ocean's Eleven, uh, which was kind of the same genre, uh, or it was the same genre, almost the same plot as the first one, um, a casino heist. Um, now it was a lot scaled down in the first one uh, before the remake because of the the studio that was shooting it at the time and the, the limitations that they had in special effects. But that kind of cutting edge uh, quips that they used to use, I mean, they had a great banter back and forth, and they held that strong in the remake. Um, so yeah, uh, Ocean's trilogy. I mean, that has to be my number. If you only ask me three, I'd say Ocean's one, two, and three. But I'm gonna put them in the second category. No, that's total. That's totally allowed. Um, and 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 I I love that you actually. I was as I was thinking of this, I was like, man, that is like, I think it's, it is the it, it's not the best for one reason or another, but it's definitely a good benchmark for a good heist movie, because I think it's easily digestible. And also, I think the second and third one kind of get a bad rap, for you know they got kind of a poor critical reception, but. Really, if because I've seen all three, if you submit to the lore of what's going on in, in this particular telling of Ocean's Eleven, they're all really good. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I just, like you said about the Lego thing, I just like watching the guys. I like watching Matt Damon pretend that he's 
you know, like the young, they treat him like the young, young little kid brother. You know, they can't do anything. But my favorite scene is when the the guy who's kind of organizing it all I forget his name but he's talking to him out at the little snack bar out at the pool and he's like yeah get your ass in the house like yeah 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 you know like this is for adults you know <laughs> or they take him to one of the meetings and they all start talking in code so he wants to play along so he starts quoting cashmere just just to kind of sound like one of the guys <laughs> obviously you know that he's out of his element yeah. but uh, but yeah so that ensemble alone is, is what keeps bringing me back to the movies the plot is cool too because I love the idea of um, I mean because in the criminal element whether it be Sin City or Goodfellas or any of these like they're just real criminals but these guys they're suave they're wearing thousand dollar suits they have unlimited resources to do the craziest things in a heist you know and it kind of, it's, it's really that kind of genre that I love because I would if I could be a spy or a criminal that's the kind I would like to be Absolutely. I think, and it's cool, I think, how uh, the way they unfolded a little bit, uh, they, <laughs> the way that they, they're telling what they're going to do, and then as they're telling it, you're, you're being shown, basically, like, the, the heist, or the, the yeah. stealing of the info, or whatever, or the, you know, that, I, I think that, uh, that's a, that's a pretty keen way that Soderbergh chose to roll out the, uh, the, the actual heist as opposed to, that's, sure. and that's a cool thing. And the way they framed it with Vegas as well, with the music, that kind of like poppy lounge mambo music that they use, you know, it's just, it's really true to the original, but it's also, I mean, it, it's very niche. It's very, there's no other movies other than maybe swingers that are kind of like Las Vegas based has the same kind of tempo the same i mean it really captivates la or los angeles and las vegas and crime i mean it's just yeah it just all, all melds together it's really cool it just if it happens sequentially it's kind of boring i guess so everything around it is is the meat i guess when it comes to a heist and they still showed it sequentially and there was still a twist at the end they showed exactly what they were going to do uh especially in the first one they showed exactly what they were going to do and there was still a huge twist at the end um so you're following along and you're you're watching them orchestrate this whole thing practice this whole thing and then you realize, oh my God, what they practiced for was the real thing, and that is the practice. And so you still had a twist, so you're still kind of caught off guard. So it was genius in that element. Yeah, I agree with that totally. Um, so uh, before before you got called away, um, my number two was Departed. Um, I uh, I really feel like. For me, this this is one of those kind of perfect mixtures of uh, just crime and bad cop t- together. Um, it, it, it it's hard. I mean, Scorsese really like this is his strong suit. I think whether it's it's crime or cops or gangsters or mafia, he really has kind of he's always had a toe in this pool. But I mean, he really to me this was. 
it, and he did win his first Oscar with this movie, but this to me was just his grand slam. This was, I mean, his life was leading him to to The Departed. I don't know how you feel about this movie, but well, have you have you seen uh, Internal Affairs, which is the Hong Kong movie that uh, Departed was based on? I am remiss in saying no that I haven't. Okay, so that's what it originally was. It was an originally a Hong Kong crime thriller, thriller, um, and. There was a Chinese title that I think it meant something like Unseizing Path or something like that. Uh, it, it was a reference to Avicii. But uh, they ended up changing it to Internal Affairs for the American audience. And it's the same thing. It's about that internal corruption, about you don't know who the cop is, who the criminal is. And then Scorsese decided to model it after Whitey Bulger, which was the Boston-based crime lord that Jack Nicholson kind of plays. And then Johnny Depp ended up playing in that movie... Uh, the the movie about Whitey Bulger. Uh, yeah, uh, Black Black Mass, which actually I'm yeah, Black Mass. I am i going to give that an honorable mention by the way because we, we don't have to talk about it, but great film and really a return yeah, to perfect. return to form for Johnny Depp. Yeah, exactly. He wasn't playing Keith Richards for once. Which was <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, Internal Affairs was uh, a little bit different because it really stressed that internal crime thing between the the. The administrative branch of the law enforcement but when he translated he made it more digestible by giving it a kingpin which was that whitey bulger character uh that jack nicholson ended up well playing. and i just i love the whole boston backdrop of this movie like i it really i mean I'm, I'm from texas and i i never spent a lot of time on the east coast growing up and I, you're from pennsylvania east so coast? You, yeah east coast uh you guys <laughs> you guys <laughs> yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. <laughs> I'm from <laughs> Illinois, <laughs> but uh, I just like I had never had this level of exposure to just kind of that that Boston mentality of you know I'm a fighter you know like just everyone in that everyone in the Boston and, and it, it's one of those cities unlike Philadelphia or New York where there's a definitive break in hierarchy based on language alone you could be from Southie down in Revere where you know Goodwill Hunting was from and you have a different accent in fact they even talk about that in Departed where it's like I bet you used to go down to Southie and slum it and then dr- come up here and drop your R's because you know he was from different parts of the tracks and that's what's great about him placing it in Boston is because you're in a police force, which is one unified thing, but in that you're going to have good guys and bad guys. And you're in Boston, and you have these slummy guys and these upper north guys, you know? Um, so it was brilliant that he chose that little area to kind of define or mimic what was going on in the organization as well. And I think there's 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 a lot of naysayers out there who, and, and, I, and I was aware of the, the original, I just haven't seen it, but there's a lot of naysayers out there who, who kind of detract from the the fidelity of departed because because of that but i i think the oh man the 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 boston backdrop really sells it for me i think that you know that alone makes it a a stand like hearing shipping off to boston five different times hey man i'm not gonna lie that not many songs out there is motivating as uh shipping up to boston and i don't care who knows it um so, so that that's definitely my number two. It's just you know, it's you get a little bit of gangster, you get a little bit of bad cop, and just a good just. I, I don't know. I I really like that film. Um, let's let's go into our number ones. Just top overall. Uh, uh, yeah, this 
it's kind of a tough one for me. I'm still kind of tossing up. I was kind of I'm in a situation where I want you guys to order your food first, so I can decide whether I want the. I know what Bernie's is. I already know what Bernie's is, and if I'm right, Josh, you owe me an almond chocolate bar, and I know you know really? what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I know what yours is. What what is it? Pulp Fiction. Oh man, <laughs> Bernie, how, please. how did you know this though? I may have I may have talked. When when Josh preempted this conversation, he said, "Yeah, so Bernie's a, a Tarantino fan. You haven't mentioned one yet, and that oh, was yeah. going to be my number one. And I knew that you were going to take it right. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> that's the background on my laptop. Also, right now. I'm a mentalist, man. I'm a mind reader. That's oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you just got magicianed. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that oh man, I could literally talk about that movie for hours. Talk talk about I w- I'm going to know because the the most pivotal part of liking a movie this much is going to be when you saw it what age you were what stage you were in your life talk about that uh when i first saw it i think i was maybe 14 15 something like that it it came out the year i was born so i mean i mean (laughs) and that's how old bernie is yeah so 22 (laughs) born in 94 that's a thing um, but no, it, it was, I don't know. When I first saw the movie, I was like, I, I am nothing like any of these people, but I want to be exactly like all of these people. And it was just, I don't know. I, I watched it maybe like four times in a row within like a week. I just watched it back to back. I, I, when I, Cause I was about the same. I was probably about fifteen when I saw Pulp Fiction the first time, and it, and I think you and me being from the south, it was probably yeah. kind of a similar situation. But I immediately went to the nearest thrift store and bought a cheap, all black blazer and pants and a white <laughs> collared shirt, and I wore it to school regularly. And I. And I I didn't care who... I mean, of course people gave me shit yeah. for it, but I didn't care because in my mind, I was Vincent Vega, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Vincent Vega. <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah, I, right I, after it came out, I was working at I was working at Blockbuster Video, and uh, so I had access to all the rentals. Word up, I worked at Blockbuster too. And, yeah, man. <laughs> the global and... yeah. Well, I, I have my name tag on my desk. <laughs> this is true. It's super I feel like my membership card my <laughs> we, uh, we had one of those duplex VCRs, so me and a buddy reported, re-recorded Pulp Fiction chronologically. So we would pause it after, oh. you know, the honey bun scene and go all the way through. Okay. We, we would spread it around and watch it that way. It was entertaining, but it wasn't as good, obviously, uh, for many reasons. But, you know, that Zed is dead, baby. Zed is dead. in <laughs> the last dead, shot as they drive away. Yeah. That's so quotable, too. I, so I've tried, so I've never recorded it. In, in chronological order but pretty often I'm just sitting around and I'm like I'm gonna watch Pulp Fiction but I'm gonna like stop it fast forward it like skip I'll, around yeah I'll skip around and watch it in order and it's not as good but no yeah it kind of I think it adds a different storyline to it it like, does it's, it's a separate movie and even though you yeah. know every character you know every word it's a brand new movie which is rare to be able to do there's only a few like Memento Pulp Fiction, Usual Suspects. There's a very few that you can actually rewatch in a different order, and it's a completely different movie. The the hardest part for me is the fact that you see Vincent Vega die so early in 
through like a yeah. two thirds through the movie, and then he's he's not done being in the movie, and so that whole I mean the whole diner scene, uh, really I mean, not even just the diner scene, but the whole scene at what's his name's house at the at what is it? Ricky, uh, what's his name? Are you talking about the boxer? No, house. Yeah, yeah, that oh, guy, Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy. Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy's house. Jimmy. The whole time you're there, you're like, oh, because it ain't fucking there. Yeah. <laughs> Like well, I mean, no, no, you're and the just. Fact that there was a break back for uh, for Travolta as an actor. I mean, he he took him. He did like Michael and Phenomenon, and then eight years later came back with Pulp Fiction. Well, and was thrown back into Face Off and you know Broken Arrow and all these other films. I mean, that was his takeoff role again. Well, and I I don't I mean I think he's finally well I I know he's he has a lot of drama in his life still as an actor, but. I don't think he's ever going to see this kind of just like return to like glory like he had and because he had his you know the whole uh, Saturday Night Fever and Grease and stuff and everyone was just he was just I a campy <laughs> oh my gosh and then uh, he does this movie where he's just this skeezy heroin doing hitman and That's pretty awesome. I mean, can we talk a little bit about pretty much the birth of Samuel L. Jackson into our lives yes. in this movie. Yes, just catapulted. Yeah, for a lot of us. I mean, he, he made a lot of great films before that. Um, a Time to Kill. I mean, he was in lots of stuff. He was, I only, uh, I only, the, I only remember him from uh, Coming to America. <laughs> he was the the <laughs> shotgun wielding uh, burglar. Well, Josh, you've seen Goodfellas. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, he was uh, Sammy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sammy gets shot down, but I mean, nobody knew, and then all of a sudden, he's Jules. And who wasn't walking around misquoting Ezekiel twenty five? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so <laughs> in the uh... for God sent His only Son. <laughs> so, so all right. My question is, and everybody has no. theories. So, my what was in the case? What? What's that? Sorry. I said so. Everybody has their own theory. What was in the briefcase? Oh. Uh, so the I mean I, we got to start with the the obvious uh, theory that it's. Marcellus Wallace's soul. soul. His soul, yeah. Right, and that's, you know, by the because of the band-aid, band-aid on the back, right. yeah. But, I, I honestly, though, I don't know what else. I mean, unless well, so it was straight based on, a, based on an interview from Tarantino at Sundance back in 99, uh, I think it was 99 or 2000, um, all it was, really, in his eyes when he was writing it, was a tribute to a movie from by Robert Aldrich called Kiss Me Deadly, and it was about this private eye that searches for a glowing case filled with radioactive material, and kind of like the movie Jaws, where you never see the monster until the end, all they would do is open up the case, and then they would have this blinding light kind of glow on it, and you know, if you know anything about Tarantino, he's completely infatuated and overcome with the pop culture that he grew up with uh, as a kid, and when he worked in a movie store as well, if you watch True Romance, or any of these, you know, Pulp Fiction, any anything, uh, it's all that kind of pop culture from uh, the TV when he was growing up. So he said it was just a tribute to that, but it could have been a cover for you know, Marcellus Wallace's soul. Well, definitely his soul. Well, and I'll say if you look up the word MacGuffin in the uh, in the dictionary, it's, oh, yeah, yeah, there's there's a briefcase there's a briefcase facing away from you with a, a gold glow coming out of it. Uh, so definitely. Um, story along I, I i think i think what better way like like there's something about a briefcase that's something that it's not hidden but and 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 he also has his typical the, the, i was talking to my wife today about just the typical 
Tarantino quintessential uh, the trunk shot. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about when Vincent Vega opens up the briefcase in the apartment with all the the and he's kind of like starstruck. He just yeah. sits there for a minute. And he's like, "Yeah, we're good." Yeah, I mean, yeah. He could. I mean, Tarantino could have easily put a camera in that briefcase and just done a close up of Travolta for five seconds. Sure. And but the, something about the glow, I think, yeah. just the the perfect just. I, he, I, th- I, I feel like he knew what he was doing. He was like, oh, people are gonna wonder, and there are gonna be fan theories about this. <laughs> or people are gonna define it as what they want to see. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, and I love that that he left it to be imprinted upon like that. Um, but one thing, just it's not really off topic, but like. So in the new cap, not the newest Captain America movie, Winter the one, Soldier, the one before that, Winter Soldier. I'm guessing it was Winter Soldier. Yeah, Samuel L. Jackson's in it. Yeah, and they have the little Easter egg, the Pulp Fiction Easter egg in it. What is it? When you know when he dies and his um, he goes to the it's cemetery. Yes, the, yeah, the Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel. Yeah. <laughs> and oh wow! Oh, awesome. I always see like I, I try and find it every time I see Samuel L. Jackson or something in a, a random movie. I'm like maybe they'll throw a Pulp Fiction reference in there. I got way too excited when I saw it. It happened though. I, I paused the movie. I took a picture of it. Like it was. I was Does way Captain too America look like a bitch? <laughs> Why did you come like that? Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Right? When it came out, everybody said that uh, that what was inside the briefcase was an Oscar, which he ended up winning for best screenplay. So Ooh, I, guess hey. it, I guess it. I believe it. That was just a, a strong prediction on Tarantino's part. That's just a great movie. Uh, Everything about that movie. <laughs> it's it really is, man. Like what it what I definitely had never been on a ride like that by the time I saw that movie. The um, most like I don't say heart pounding, but like I was so intrigued the whole time Mia Wallace was dying. Oh, I was just like on oh, the edge dude. of my seat. I was just like, that, this is this is intense right now. Get the fuck! You know, Eric Stoltz is like, I gotta stab her three times. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you stab her once. I will be forced <laughs> to tell him that you did not help me. I just like how Vincent Vega was immediately willing to snitch. Immediately. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my, my, my favorite part about that scene is actually the part where they go back to her house. And she they're just... Joke. Yeah, she tells the joke. But they're just like... You look at them and they're just like... They have a very realistic afterglow of like... We just went through some shit in their house. <laughs> also like how... Uh, Quentin, so this is kind of going like to the director itself how a lot of his movies kind of tie together yeah that whole like era of movies it was all kind of in the same world sure, I guess the like same Vega realm being, uh, you know he was mentioned in Reservoir Dogs yeah it's like yeah, one yeah, of his brothers Big Vega or cousin yeah, Vega, um, yeah. Mia Wallace that like that whole Fox Force 5 is like a rough yeah. draft of Kill Bill almost yeah, absolutely and so I don't know that's just as a director I feel like it's it's kind of rare you find a director that cares that, so much about his movies. That was him kicking the door in and saying, "I'm Quentin Tarantino and I'm here to fuck shit up." Yeah. <laughs> well, it was yeah. I mean, he you know, Reservoir Dogs where he had no budget with USQ films, and then uh, or no, a band apart, and then uh, um, finally got some money after you know selling his script for Natural Born Killers, and then boom, he had studio backing, and he's like, "I can do whatever I want. Like, I can do all the effects." I can get the stars that I want. This is awesome. And he nailed it out of the park, man. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't agree more. One of my favorites. 
Uh, and I'm glad it's just consistently on Netflix because anytime I need to just feel like a criminal, kind of like we talked about earlier, uh, I can I can turn on Netflix and grab me some some Pulp Fiction. Chris, let's talk your your number one, your overarching, uh, your gangster, your well not gangster, but your 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 crime film that you would take on a deserted island. I mean, it's tough because it's all based on mood. But if I if I quantify like style and delivery and subject matter and acting um, God, and script. Like it's, I mean, there's so many good ones. I mean, I could literally name five that I would be like, this is the best film ever. Like if somebody said, I've never seen a gangster film or a movie, a crime film, I'd be like, oh, you got to see Casino or Goodfellas or, you know, Reservoir Dogs or this. But when I talk about style and stuff and like how it was made and the story behind it, man, I love Natural Born Killers. Natural Born Killers is really great because it was a commentary of the 90s. It was a commentary of that kind of real world. Like the show Real World was on MTV at the time where we needed to document every second of somebody's day and make them re- like you know Mickey was one of the first Mickey and Mallory were one of the first reality stars and it was crime based can I uh, also a Tarantino script so you know can I show my age and not like in the opposite way people normally say that but in saying it was after Iron Man came out that I realized that is Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. yeah he was he was the Geraldo which is exactly who he was playing the Geraldo of, of that time, which is that investigative reporter that just wants the cutting edge story, but they interspliced it with Rodney Dangerfield and this kind of like honeymooners style TV show where it was about incest and abuse and murder, setting their parents on fire, and they played it up with the laugh track and like a kind of married with children, you know, house set. Um, so it was just brilliant, and then they would intersplice, you know, uh, all these different graphics when they're tripping or they're poisoned by snakes and stuff. Um, and, and one of my favorite quotes uh, ever about anything, and I've, I've said this to like, I've said this to ex-girlfriends before, uh, <laughs> is when they're, si- they're sitting in like a, a tent, an Indian tent, and they're all doing peyote or some tea or something, and the Indian tells them a story. He says, uh, you know, one day a man saw a sick snake uh, laying on the side of the road, and he invited the snake in, and he nursed it back to health. And at that point, when it was healthy, the snake bit him, and slithered away and as he was slithering away he says why would you do that I took care of you and he's like fucker you knew I was a snake you know so it's like it's, it's like you can you are what you are no matter what your conditions are and these people were just destined to be complete fucking savages and then when the nation kind of held them up as rock star status they're like yeah we are they embraced it themselves and just went over the top so I just love the commentary on reality stars and uh, the media and all that other shit. I just thought it was great. And, and and I mean, who better to really lead it than Woody Harrelson, who's... I mean, he... he Your father was, was an assassin. Yes, who that's... Died in prison. I'm glad you know about that, because not... They used, to, they, they used to think that he was one of the tramps. Hold on. And, uh, Back, hold on. Slow, slow down, Chris, because Bernie did not even know about this. You need to tell... Because I knew about this, but talk about Woody Harrelson's dad. So Woody, yeah. So what I know about him was I think he was from Texas. They were in Texas. Um, his dad was a contract assassin that used to get hired out from the mob for union jobs, 
where the unions would be trying to shut, or sorry, outside organizations would be trying to shut down certain construction unions or public works unions, and his job was kind of rub out the guy that was starting the whole mess so that, you know, things couldn't get developed. So he'd get hired by the unions or by the mafia. He had ties everywhere. In fact, there was a theory that he was one of the assassins on the grassy knoll in Dallas uh, during the JFK assassination um, because there was a picture of three men walking from a train car that day on November 22nd, 1963, but they were really dressed well, and they had they were clean-shaved, they had nice shoes, nice suits, but everybody you know, said that they were hobos, which back in that day, hobos had torn and ragged clothes, and they identified one of those men as Woody Harrelson's dad. He ended up getting uh, incarcerated for a uh, premeditated uh, assault charge and ended up dying in prison. Um, so so he grew up with this whole stigma of crime and being in a criminal family and knowing right from wrong. And man, he just God, fuck, that is killed crazy. it. Same same I guy who would, same guy who would go on to be upset about Twinkies in the Zombieland movie. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and an Oliver, it's an Oliver Stone film, which you know, it just I mean, Tarantino really got screwed on that film because he sold it to Roger Avery. Uh, and he only got story credit, even though he wrote the whole screenplay. And Avery ended up taking credit for the screenplay. And, but it should have been a film that Tarantino directed, and that's how it was supposed to be. It didn't go that way, and it would have been. A, I would have loved to have seen the movie if it was Tarantino directing that story and that script. But I think Stone did a good job uh, keeping true to the original material. I think so too. I've kind of a love hate thing with Stone because I feel like he'll he'll do a really just true blue just a good movie and then he'll turn around and just put out shit like the world trans center movie. Yeah. He, I think, I think that's his, his answer to walk the line is I'll go risky and then super safe in the same quarter. Almost. It seems like, but yeah, which he doesn't have to, he has to be making ends meet. You know what I mean? He has to have money. It's not like he needs the money to do a crap film. I guess it's sad to think that the guy who made Platoon is like, I gotta gotta pay the bills. Like, you'd think by this point in his career, he could probably, I mean, he could make shit and be fine, almost. Or JFK. I mean, anytime I play Seven Degrees of Kevin Bacon, I pull up JFK because there's like 45 different people that I can draw on. And, I mean, a great film. Yeah, great film, and everyone under the sun is in it. So, uh,. Uh, another great pick, uh, Natural Born Killers. I'm gonna I'm gonna go pretty typical with my number one. Uh, since we're talking crime movies, to me this is just the apex. This is just as far as just a low level look from start to finish. Uh, and we've already kind of gleaned over a little bit on this, but uh, I'm gonna talk Goodfellas. Oh yeah. I think. Uh, I just want to point out I've not known a single movie you guys have picked. <laughs> Because you're sleeping, bro. <laughs> My movie game is weak right now. <laughs> Dude. You must have a life and friends. <laughs> yeah. You're you're on the wrong podcast. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'm going to put this in terms that hopefully you as a person who has not seen this movie can understand it. Um, and, and Chris, I'm definitely going to call on your talents here in a second. And I think you know what I'm talking about. But... Uh, um, Goodfellas is is the Henry Hill story. He's a guy who uh, he's a gangster. He got involved with gangs at a very very young age, um, and it basically it's it's a Scorsese movie. It, it came out in what ninety three ninety four. Yep. And uh, okay, well, you know, 
So I mean, it's Pulp Fiction era, but um, it's a little more. It's it's a more it's a more typical gangster movie, and yet it's not because it it just it it had everything that the other ones didn't. Um, but it showed everything from this kid kind of get getting recruited by some of the the wingmen in the in the in the mafia to him kind of making his fortune and getting involved in kind of the dealings of whatever they did to what it took to be a made man and um uh he even talks about like uh, i could never be a made man because i wasn't born in sicily or whatever i wasn't born in the old country or whatever and all that stuff um joe pesci robert de niro um ray liotta who has always been one of my favorites even after this movie like he just has a mat- he pops up yeah he, he has a magnetism that I think is, is he's uh, just severely understated. And um, yeah, and it completely, this movie seems like two thirds of the way through, it seems like it's just building towards, and these guys end up ruling the world. But at that two thirds mark, it goes haywire. And everyone involved in the movie seemingly uh, experiences a fall from grace in their own way. And at the end, it's just... It's either utter chaos that just it, it basically turns out in, in shit for everyone involved in the movie. I don't know, Chris. Chris talk about this movie. You 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 so like I mean, Goodfellas? For me, it was my my first exposure of Scorsese, really. Um, and it was two separate movies for me because in the beginning, it's 1940s New York going up to the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, and it's very you know pinstripe suits and spats and pocket handkerchiefs and, and martinis. And then it ends basically being Blow with Johnny Depp, where it's the late 70s, early 80s, and it's a cocaine franchise, and there's still old school rules. So it spans this whole generation. Uh, Scorsese, if you've noticed in Departed and Goodfellas and Casino, he loves music. So like, there's a period where it's just like 20 straight minutes of a medley of different music all the way through from like bebop to, to Motown, and then you know ends up being, you know, I think he uses Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones as a main theme song for every film he ever does. Uh, So he, you know, so he he uses music to really move the the time period along. Um, And the fact that when when you see like everybody fell from grace, that's because it was a true story, and that's because that's what really happens in crime. If it wasn't, you would see everybody, you know, it would be like Ocean's Eleven, or it would be like any other crime film where you know the guys are all shaking hands and patting asses at the end and divvying up money and walking away into the sunset. But because it was a true film or a true story, they had to follow these guys' true downfalls, and they 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 uh, they focused on true crimes that these organizations uh, did, like the Lufthansa heist and things like that. Like these were actual crimes that happened at the LaGuardia airport or the, the JFK airport. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was a biopic. It was exaggerated, but it also, it glamorized mafioso, but it also detracted, uh, it because you saw their fall. Unlike Pulp Fiction, which only glamorizes that lifestyle. You're like, I want to, I want to carry around a pistol and I want to shoot people or I want a silencer and I want to be able to kill people. Like this showed the other side of it as well after it glamorized it. So that's what was brilliant about it to me is it showed both sides, the up and the down. I think it's funny how it almost at the beginning of the or well, like I said, the first two thirds of the film, it almost makes that like that gangster mafia lifestyle look kind of pretty and clean. Everyone's got nice slick back hair and nice 
you know, pinstripe suits and they all look like gangsters, you know, it's all clean, you know, there's, there's the dirty parts where they're killing people, obviously, but by the end of the movie, everyone just looks and acts filthy and it's just, just worn and <laughs> like they're holding their consciousness <laughs> on their shoulder face. Yeah, and the guy's like, this'll make you see helicopters, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, it's so grimy. Yeah, it's so just, grimy. yeah, it's, it's, I love it. That's why it's my number one because it's just a journey from. I'm a kid in New York, and I, you know, I've been recruited by the mafia, and now, now I'm kind of a runner for them. Okay, now I'm, I'm in good standing with the mafia. Now I'm a made man in the mafia. To now I'm, I'm on the run because the mafia didn't work out, and now I'm just a piece of shit. Well, I always saw it. I always saw it as a story between community and individual. Like he, he desires so bad to be part of a community, part of a family, part of something that belongs, you know, which is why a lot of us joined the army. We wanted like a group of people that we could be like, no, yeah, this is what I am. But he couldn't stave off his own personal uh, demons, which was the cocaine, which was the, the drugs and the guns and things like that. Um, even though he pretty much had everything he wanted, if he would have just played the game the right way, his individual ended up ruining the community, which he fought for the whole time. So I always saw it as two separate things, you know, um, which is what we're kind of we're all dealing with at times. Yeah, I I agree, and I think it's just really uh, Scorsese in in true form. Um, not not as masterstroke because he would go on to make uh, just a lot more really great films. Uh, in my opinion, that's one of the more underrated makers of films like these. But um, just just a really just a grand slam for him. Um, so we're kind of we're run re- really long on time tonight, Chris, and I know you're trying to get back to doing whatever you're doing. Uh, we wanted to talk about our biggest pieces of shit, <laughs> gangster and crime films that we uh, also uh, liked. So Bernie had one picked out, and then maybe if you could dig deep quickly and find yours, uh, we'll talk about that briefly, and then we'll uh, hopefully do a promo and then cut out for the day. Sounds good, brother. Um. <clears throat> The, the movie I did not like much at all was uh, Four Brothers. I just... Yeah. <laughs> I just... I don't know. It was just such a cliche movie. So predictable. Just everything about it was predictable. Uh, well, fuck it. If you haven't seen it. Other than the brother getting shot at the end. It's the only thing I didn't see coming. <clears throat> But everything else about that was just super predictable. I just didn't, I don't know, it didn't really flow very well to me. It's super know. hard to take Andre 3000. This is true. Seriously, at his, <laughs> at, at his day job? Yeah. <laughs> so when he his night job is making movies like this, I'm like, ah, I, I give up. Yeah, I, I don't know. I liked, I, I like Mark Wahlberg, but I didn't like him in that. Tyrese... Gibson, I mean, he's a good actor. There was a lot of good actors in it. Um, Taraji P. Henson, um, the other Terrence white guy, Howard, <laughs> Terrence Howard. <clears throat> Terrence Howard is really good. He's a good actor, but just the movie itself, Sofia Vergara, gorgeous, and she's in that. And, and I just didn't, I don't know, I didn't like it. Yeah, it, it left me with that. Eh, that was, I wouldn't watch this movie again. <laughs> Chris Dixon. Oh man, so it's a it's a toss up because the first one that I loved when I was a kid 
but I absolutely hate now, and it might be because it doesn't stand up to the test of time, is Hudson Hawk with Bruce Willis. Hmm, I don't um, even know Hudson Hawk, like man. Hudson uh, Hawk <laughs> is basically Darkwing Duck in human form. <laughs> <laughs> <It was> not... <laughs> he, he's, like a, he's like a cat burglar, um, and it's just, it, it was definitely late 80s, early 90s, like 1990, um, but just, it was good at the time, it kind of flopped in the box office, um, but it made me want to be a cat burglar. But my main, <laughs> my main one was um, Get Carter, which was the Sylvester Stallone film. Yeah. That was just garbage. Oh, I mean, it was garbage. Yeah. It, uh, it was just so bad. I mean, Stallone was trying to break out and do kind of like a, a funny kind of, uh, you know, uh, like, uh, I don't know, like an endearing character. I don't know, man. There's so many bad crime films. Dick Tracy yeah. was garbage. Oh, Very man, I love Dick Tracy. <laughs> Yeah, you're a comic book guy, man. Like, you like to see purple fucking PT crime hey, down the street. Hey, man. Like, it's roofing Roger Rabbit. Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty yeah. and Madonna forever. That's all I got to say. Yeah, until they got divorced. We've seen how that works. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if, if this movie qualifies as a crime movie, but it just came out. I think it was called Escape. It was with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. No, that's the prison Stone. movie, Yeah, man. no, that was a crime no, movie. No, that's... Yeah, that was a, it was, was a, a shitty movie, man. Yeah, that was a puzzle movie. I do. It was a I, shitty movie. Hang on. Hold up. I love that movie. That's a shitty and, movie. I, okay, oh so let me, let's talk about it. Let's talk about fun. this. I watched that I movie. I watched that movie on a... Yes, I absolutely. On a flight. Yeah, shitty. I watched that movie on a CQ shift back, this is back a couple of years ago, and I loved it because it was just like... It was like Arnold and Stallone met up in a room, and they were like, you know what we do good together? We make good... 80s and 90s era action movies let's just make that movie over again yeah. and even you know what even when I kill the bad guy Stallone you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna say a one liner oh, so bad and you know what What is, I don't even know what he says but it's just like I'm Arnold and you're fired or something like it's like someone <laughs> had to red burn into the yeah. you blew it or something Arnold like. <laughs> the worst one liners man I think the worst was from Batman Returns or Batman Forever where it's like freeze you later alligator <laughs> <laughs> when he's Mr. <laughs> oh, dude, no, I, uh, I, I. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna pick Scarface as my worst, but I knew that there would be a lot of people. Ooh, ooh, <laughs> talking, I'm, talking I'm about like, some hate I'm mail, bro. Scarface, <laughs> yeah, you're not a. Miami is gonna, is gonna pit, Pitbull's whole fan base is gonna mess I here's my thing with Scarface. I think it has some pretty cool. Ski- cool scenes and you, you cannot deny even if you're not a fan that it has iconic moments but it just seems he is the least likable of all the main <laughs> yeah. characters because he's I mean they're all kind of pieces of shit at the end of the day but he just like if, if Tony Montana was in a room with me I would just be like D- can you be quiet like I, I don't know you want you want to say shit you would go home and be like can you this guy at this party that I just didn't want to be anywhere near and I watched him to make sure he didn't steal ashtrays. He had an M16 <laughs> with an M203 on it and he was just pointing it at everyone and it was really obnoxious. <laughs> he must have been baking something because he had flour all over his face. <laughs> nah, I, 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 I'm not going to say it's not the... It, 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 I see why people like it but I, I don't know. I, I think because it's become such a big part of like 
I, I guess like hip hop culture or whatever. But yeah, I think it's because I didn't come from nothing and have to overcome the world. That I'm like, <laughs> I, don't, that I don't identify with this character. I'm white and privileged, so this movie is not fun for me. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm so glad to be on your first and last podcast. <laughs> oh my gosh! So, ah, oh, I that's a good that's a good one. So, uh, Chris, I guess lastly, before we cut out, just where can people find you? I, I, I don't want to give up too much, but you have something that you've done for the the David Blaine that I don't want to reveal oh, yeah. too much about. But about, no, no, about. yeah, I really don't even know what, what's going to happen. So, um, uh, David Blaine, is I, I've been a magician for a while and I've been in contact with him for for quite a while now and he emailed me and asked me to film something and send it into him because he has a new ABC special coming out um, around November December time frame um, so I actually had to go down to the PX here I guess it's the the BX since I'm on an Air Force base and, and do a little filming and um, send it into him so there's going to be a little quick uh, snippet um, doing some magic uh, over distance uh, with David Blaine in his new ABC special that's going to be coming out uh, later on this fall. That's totally they awesome. Can, they that's can find me good. on uh, Instagram as Erdnase1902. That's E-R-D-N-A-S-E-1902. Um, and then on Twitter, I am C underscore Dixon. Awesome. I can do the Twitter. <laughs> and we'll definitely... We'll, we'll I don't do the Twitter either. <laughs> we'll... Uh, <laughs> We'll post a link to uh, to your your Instagram and your Twitter and stuff as well, and hopefully cool. once the once uh, all the other stuff comes comes to life, we'll uh, make sure people are made aware of that. But hey, man, I just want to say thank you for uh, helping us out and giving your opinions about awesome movies. And hopefully, this is not the last time you're on the podcast, unless all the people are just up in arms over about your your your, your uh, you my, know my Scarface comment. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think, the white yeah, I know. Uh, 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 just uh, the, the 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 phones are off the hook right now about all the the hate. From, you know, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, th- thanks so much, man, and uh, we'll look forward to having you on again. Hey, it's my pleasure, guys. Man, it's been a blast, and I can't wait to hear it when it comes out. Give me a call anytime. You bet, man. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Cheers. Bye. All right, uh, big thanks to Chris Dixon for coming on today. Um, I think that probably about wraps it up for us. This is, we're running yeah, at about two hours. This is a long episode. <laughs> it's like a Joe Rogan podcast right now. <laughs> um, uh, if you are new to the False Motivation podcast, please... Everyone uh, is, because it's new. Because it is new. Um, continue to keep an ear to the ground. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, our Instagram is at False Motivation Pod. Our Twitter is what, Green? At uh, False Motive Pod, M O T I V Pod. A little bit different. Not a big deal. <sighs> they have a character limit. Weirdos. Um, man, good Facebook. talk today. I feel like I know more about you because of the way you feel about Pulp Fiction now. I love that movie. It's unreal how much love I have for that movie. It's good. And hopefully in the future, if you guys have any suggestions, we need to do a watch through, play through. Whatever. We're definitely big video game fans. We're comic book fans. We're movie fans. Music. If we're just talking nonsense on here, comment. Come to our page. Send us a uh, send us an email at falsemotivationpod at gmail.com. 
and uh, give us your feedback. And of course, if you like the podcast, share it with a friend because podcasts are the the way of the future. The radio is dying. It's all about podcasts now. Let's t- let's talk about what we want to talk about, not what higher headquarters says we should be talking about. Right? This is true. Fuck the people. <laughs> that is absolutely counterintuitive to what I was saying, but I appreciate your enthusiasm, I sir. Too much to drink. Don't judge me. <laughs> That's true. Words don't work anymore. The storm. The storm is still. Uh, the storm is still raging out here. So. Um, Stay tuned. Not sure when the next episode is coming out. We're kind of not on an official schedule yet. We've got some TDYs and some traveling coming up. Um, we're going to try to get more guests for you guys and hopefully have uh, some content for you guys over the next few weeks. So thank you for your patience. And remember to stay tuned and share this episode. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the False Motivation Podcast. Follow us on Facebook at False Motivation Pod to get news and updates.